But uh, I want to begin by just uh, asking the question that Job asked back in uh, chapter 14. You don't need to turn to it, but it's Job 14, 14. And he says this, If a man dies, will he live again? If a man dies, will he live again? Now that has been a question on the minds of men and women, even children sometimes if they think about death, uh, down through the centuries. If a man dies, will he live again? And, you know, we sometimes read more back into the Old Testament than uh, what a lot of the writers and people of that time actually were uh, really uh, aware of in that um, often we, we read things there that uh, lets us realize that they had a very vague idea of the answer to that question. If a man dies, we would live again. In fact, Job, uh, just prior to writing that, uh, said this, For there is hope for a tree when it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, and its stump dies in the dry soil, at the scent of water it will flourish and put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires, and where is he? Does that sound like a real confidence in uh, what happens after death? He, he was asking a real question here. If a man dies, will he live again? Now, there are other places in the book of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. It's like uh, in the midst of their wondering and, and contemplating these things, God would give flashes of illumination, but it never really gelled. It never really all, all fit together for him. And you see that, I mean, there are so many examples of this. Of course, the book of Ecclesiastes is one, but even in the Psalms, uh, David, for instance, um, Psalm 30, verse 9, and these are just kind of oh, out of hundreds that you could pick out. Uh, here's David in uh, Psalm 30 and verse 9. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Now, he's worried about being killed at this point. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise thee? Will it declare thy faithfulness? In other words, if I'm dead, what, what praise can I give to you? Now, uh, you know, as a Christian, we wouldn't ask that question. We have a much clearer understanding. And David, at times, it seemed like he had a much clearer understanding. And then at other times, he would ask that. Uh, questions like this are here. The psalmist in uh, Psalm 88, uh, verse 10. <clears throat> Wilt thou perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise thee? Well, some idea of departed spirits here, but will they rise and praise thee? Will thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, thy faithfulness and abaddon? Will thy wonders be made known in the darkness and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now, we don't usually think of the afterlife as the land of forgetfulness. Uh, so again, you have these... these um, 
vague understandings of, of what happens after death in the Old Testament. But all that was changed. And uh, Paul even puts it this way in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 10, talking about Christ. Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Because of Christ and what he's done and what he said, and especially because of the resurrection, he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so I just want to speak with you a little this evening related to the subject of the resurrection of Christ. But now is Christ risen from the dead. Um, no more do we have to have these vague ideas. Uh, and again, God was showing things, and you can go back and read verses now in light of the New Testament and see clearly uh, some verses that speak of the resurrection of the dead, and you can see clearly many verses uh, about eternity. In fact, we're told even uh, that uh, God has put eternity on our hearts, um, that men should seek him there in the book of Ecclesiastes. But it, th those things did not become clear until after the resurrection of Christ. Um, so that's what we want to look at this evening. And the chapter that's the most uh, uh, famous probably on that and the most full would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's turn there. <clears throat> and we'll just read some sections of this chapter. First of all, beginning up at verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So as of first importance that he died for our sins, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the to the scriptures. He goes on and talks about some of the people that he appeared to after his resurrection. And then if we pick it up again in verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now let me just make a little interjection here. This was written to the Corinthians, Greek society. The Greeks had a real problem with the idea of the material realm. It was evil, and especially the body. So if you taught the resurrection of the dead, they said, this doesn't make sense to us. It just doesn't fit. This is what... They wouldn't have a problem if you taught some kind of a spiritual uh, resurrection, some kind of an idea of you living on in a spirit realm. But the idea of the resurrection of the body, that was a real problem to them. So apparently that's what was being... Uh, challenged here uh, by the Corinthians. He says, um, some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead. It just didn't fit into the prevailing worldview that they had been raised on all, you know, all their life. And there's, a, I think, a lesson for us right there. We really have to be careful about uh, the prevailing worldview, how it affects our theology. You have to really watch that. 
because it's all around you and you don't realize that you're bringing something into the reading of the scriptures that may be distorting your understanding of God's truth. Well, apparently that was happening somewhat here with these people. And there were some saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Well, Paul says, wait a minute. You're going to have to get this clear or you lose everything. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied or most miserable, I think the King James says. But then he turns it around and says, of course, this is not the case. Christ has risen from the dead. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he, that is Christ, delivers up the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So we'll stop reading there, although you could go on and read really the rest of the chapter has to do with resurrection. But let's just talk a little bit here about the resurrection of Christ. He says it's as of first importance. Uh, it's central to the gospel. There is no gospel without the resurrection of Christ. And it's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. There aren't any other religions whose founder is alive today because he was raised from the dead. Uh, they're all dead. And we're talking about a real historical event, not some thing that makes us feel good because we just think about it. Uh, you know, the so-called Easter faith. If there's no Easter fact, then whatever Easter faith you have is worthless. You've got to have an Easter fact, and the fact is Christ rose from the dead. 2,000 years ago, certain place, certain time, he rose from the dead. So, uh, Paul says, you've got to have this. If you don't have this, you lose it all. And so I want to just examine some of the implications uh, of this teaching. First of all, from a negative standpoint, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And that's what Paul does first. He goes through the negative. He says, first of all, in, in 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. There's absolutely no reason for me to stand up here and talk to you about Christ if he has not 
raised from the dead, if he's not risen from the dead. Um, uh, it could sound real good, what I have to say. It could make you feel real good. A lot of preaching, a lot of uh, religious uh, gathering is, is based on that, just because it makes you feel good. Um, there's a great deal of um, emotional manipulation that can be done through nice stories and feel-good type things or tear-jerking deals. But in the end, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, there's no use preaching about Christianity or Christ. Um, Paul says, our preaching is in vain. So, yeah, actually, you know, a lot of liberal Christianity is exactly that. It's a bunch of vain preaching because they don't believe in the, in the resurrection of Christ, the bodily, physical time, space, reality, resurrection of Christ. They don't believe in it. They believe in telling you about an experience that you can have with this spirit or whatever, but as far as believing that Christ actually rose from the dead, they don't believe it. So Paul says that preaching is in vain. In vain. Uh, To deny the resurrection is to forfeit any right to preach in the name of Christ. The next thing he says, uh, verse 15, well, it's not the next, but it's the next one I'm going to deal with. 15, moreover, we are found, even found to be false witnesses of God. Um, What he's saying there is the apostles, the people that wrote the New Testament, they'd be false witnesses because they say Christ rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, then they're false witnesses. Their writings were un, would be unreliable, distortions of the truth. So throw out, throw out the New Testament. Not only that, he says that our faith in Christ is in vain. Preaching in vain, New Testament's worthless, and our faith in Christ would be vain. See that in the last part of verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain in vain. That means it's worthless. Might as well follow Muhammad or Buddha or some some guy that's telling you the latest fad. (coughs) Jesus, over and over again in his ministry, spoke of his coming death and resurrection. And these are some of the most daring uh, statements that Christ ever made, proclaiming that he would be killed and then he would rise again from the dead on the third day. He said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And he was speaking about his body. He said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking of his burial. And... Um, he said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. So if he was wrong about that, um, how can we trust what he said about anything? In other words, <clears throat> your faith in Christ would be in vain if there was no resurrection. And then he draws out the implications of it still further in 17 where he says, uh, 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. How could we be sure that our sins were forgiven and fully atoned for if Christ was still in the grave? You couldn't. You couldn't know that there was real satisfaction, that Christ was, that God was satisfied with this sacrifice that was made if, the, if he was still dead and in the grave. His death could be just a martyr's death, a misguided martyr at that. He was wrong about what he thought he was doing uh, with no real significance concerning the forgiveness of sins. One person said it this way, apart from the resurrection of Christ, the cross of Christ is nothing other than a tragedy. Apart from the resurrection of Christ, the cross of Christ is nothing but a tragedy, and we are still in our sins. So that's what Paul says. You are still in your sins. Then he goes on and says this, um, just, just trying to bring this, this home to these people. Not only are they still in their sins, but what about those that have died already? Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're done for because Christ didn't rise from the dead. They died clinging to a false hope. And then, lastly, he says this, that we are of all men most miserable or most to be pitied. You see that in verse 19. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, listen, we've staked everything on this. If you're a Christian, that's what you've done. Now, if you're just, you know, straddling the fence, that's different, you know. But Paul's saying, we've staked everything on this. And if Christ hasn't rise, risen from the dead, we should be pitied. We've missed out. In fact, Paul even brings it home uh, personally uh, down in verse uh, 32 where he says, If from human motives, in other words, no divine purpose in it, just from human motives, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. I think he's not really talking about lions and tigers. I think it's talking about people. I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. What does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Might as well get what you can out of life. What's in the, I mean, why, why live a sacrificial life? Why lay your, down your life for others? If this, you know, if Christ has not been raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, that's the implication. Um, we are of all men most to be pitied. So those are the negative things that Paul brings out in relationship to why, you know, what, what you're hearing, this worldview that is all around you in the Greek culture is robbing you um, and what it does to the gospel. It destroys the gospel if there's no resurrection. So the resurrection is vital. Its importance cannot be overemphasized, but Paul then turns to the positive side. What does the resurrection show us, or what does it guarantee us? First of all, it is a clear declaration by God the Father that the penalty for the broken law has been paid in full. Christ's work 
had fully satisfied the demands of the law. The soul, you know, the, the law said the soul that sins, it shall die. Well, that's been taken care of. Christ's death on our behalf. He was delivered up because of our transgressions, and he was raised because of our justification. Wilbur Smith, a well-known Christian of a number of years ago, said this, The resurrection is proof positive of the sufficiency of the atonement. It is the Father's signed manual that he is satisfied with our substitute, our sacrifice, our priest, our victim, and that nothing now stands between the sinner, between sinners and forgiveness. All that is needful has been accomplished since Jesus has come back from the dead. We know that this sacrifice was accepted because Christ rose from the dead. He's not still suffering. The debt's been paid, and he's alive. So it's a clear declaration that God the Father, by God the Father, that the penalty for the broken law has been paid in full. Another thing that uh, we could draw from this is that it's proof that Christ's work of redemption has been fully successful. In other words, that death has been abolished. Christ's work of redemption has been fully successful. He made a complete conquest of death and of him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Death has no further hold on him. The last enemy has been conquered by Christ. Now, we don't see the total outworking of that yet in our lives, but that enemy has been dealt with. Uh, Satan has been defeated. And, you know, Christ said prior to the crucifixion even, uh, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he proved this through his own resurrection. I mean, I could say, anyone, if anybody could say that, I could say, I'm the resurrection and the life. But Christ proved he was because he rose from the dead. In fact, he said this in the book of, of Revelation, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. He's going to unlock that. That coffin. You might put it that way anyway. Now, I've been reading some from a man named G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, I didn't bring the book, but I brought a photocopy of the section I wanted to read to you. Uh, we're told here in this section that we, we read... The last enemy that will be abolished is death. We know it's going to be abolished because Christ has risen from the dead. It's already, the, the, the victory has been won. The cleaning up operation is still taking place. But let me just read what uh, G. Campbell Morgan had to say. He said, well, let me just preface it by saying that uh, death is presented as an enemy in the scriptures, the last enemy. Christ fought and won the victory over that enemy of mankind. And now this is what G. Campbell Morgan says. He says, The true attitude of the Christian towards death is that of antagonism, of conflict. Now this is a little different than what we normally hear or think, but I think he's, he's uh, at least 
there's an aspect of this that we need to hear. Uh, true attitude of the Christian toward death is out of antagonism and conflict. The Christian must ever be in conflict with death by every method, by the observation of the laws of health, by the employment of all medical science and skill. Death is to be held, held away. And then he goes on and says this, If it be objected that this is hardly the usual language of Christianity about death, I again remind you that this is the language of the apostolic exclamation in the midst of his argument for the resurrection, what we just read here. In the midst of his talking about the resurrection, he calls death an enemy. And then he says, As the years pass on, I I have a growing sense of hostility and hatefulness of death. O death, I hate thee, but thou art not master of the situation. Jesus is king, the risen Lord, and master reigns. In other words, we need to have the same attitude that Christ had. It's an enemy. He's fighting against it. And, you know, that made me think, uh, even in, in a lot of different areas, like even medical profession, what you're doing is you're fighting against this enemy in one way or another. And that's good. That's good. But you're not going to conquer that way. The only way that conquering is done is through Christ, and that's what he's done. Uh, Because he's risen from the dead. Though we hate death, we do not have to fear it. Let me quote another man, Athanasius, quite a bit uh, further back in time. Uh about the 4th century. He said, Since the day when the Savior rose from the dead, death is no longer a fearful thing. All those who believe in Christ know that in dying they no longer perish and that the resurrection will render them incorruptible. The, resurre- the resurrection of the last day. Resurrection will render them incorruptible. But as he said, Since the day when the Savior rose from the dead, death is no longer a fearful thing. We fight against it, but it's not fearful. So anyway, uh, the resurrection is proof that Christ's work of redemption has been fully successful. And then it is the guarantee that those united to him shall at God's appointed time also be raised in a glorious resurrection. In other words, the fact of Christ's resurrection gives us a certitude of our resurrection. Thomas Watson said it this way. I like the way some of these old writers put things. Um, He said, We are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. (laughs) You don't know. You don't know if you're going to get out of bed tomorrow, but you can be absolutely certain that you're going to rise from the dead because Christ rose from the dead. So they have a good way of making us see the point. Uh, As I said earlier on, many people, even non-Christians, have cherished thoughts of life beyond the grave. There's a lot of speculation and conjecture on that subject. I just was reading recently, let me take a little aside here, about Harry Houdini, you know, the great magician. Well, when his mother died, he was 
distraught. And he wanted, if there was any way that he could make contact with his mother. And uh, these psychics and seances were real popular at the time. But being a magician, he knew how to do all this tricky stuff. So he, he'd see these, uh, these psychics that were making all kinds of money supposedly contacting the dead, but he knew that it was false because he knew how they were doing it. And he would, he, he would ex go in and expose these psychics, and, uh, of course, they didn't like that at all. But uh, he, that was, in fact, he incorporated a uh, part into his show where he would demonstrate how a psychic would do something, and then he'd show how it was actually done, you know, certain handwriting or that appeared mysteriously or voices and I mean, he, had, he knew how they did it. But he still had some concept that, you know, he wanted to have, in any way he could, have contact with his departed mother. And, uh, of course, all this, you know, is unscriptural, what he was doing, because, uh, first of all, we know we're not supposed to have any of that type of contact. We're told that in the Old Testament. Uh, that that was something that was an abomination to God, uh, and that it would be actually in the realm of the demonic. Well, anyway, I say all that to say that uh, a lot of speculation about these things. In fact, Houdini died on Halloween, and he left his wife with the instructions. He gave her a password, and he said, Now, if it's possible to come back from the dead, to contact you from the dead, I'll... I'll, I'll do it. Uh, I'll try to do it. Well, no contact. Nobody, none of these psychics. It's kind of amazing to me that Satan hadn't pulled one on that because they, there's still people that get together on Halloween night and try to contact Houdini. But nobody's ever come up with a password. And, of course, his wife's dead now, too. But the point is, is that all kinds of speculation and, you know, uh, thoughts about this type of thing. But We don't need to. We don't need to wonder. We don't need to. We know the answer to this. Christ has risen from the dead. Um, with his resurrection comes an understanding of what life after death is all about. He's the only one who has demonstrated the reality of life after death. The historic fact of Christ raising from the dead is the foundation of our faith that we shall also be raised. You might say it this way. In his resurrection, the resurrection of mankind begins. He's the first fruits. That's what it says here. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, there's a resurrection of the just and the unjust, but there's going to be a resurrection, and the first, we know that's the case because Christ has raised from the dead. Christianity teaches a reuniting of the soul and the body. And there's, you know, there's a lot that we don't understand about this, uh, but we see something of what it'll be like as we look at what Christ was like after he rose from the dead and appeared to the various people 
at various appearances there before he ascended back to heaven. Well, uh, something of what is true of Christ's resurrected body, resurrected body will be true of ours. In fact, Paul says this, and I think this is an amazing verse in Philippians, uh, where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is chapter 3, verse 21. Who will transform the body of our humble state, as this thing, into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, has even to subject all, thing, subject all things to himself. In other words... Through the power of Christ, the power of the resurrected living Christ, our body, the body of this humble state, is going to be changed into conformity with the body of his glory. Something, anyway, like that resurrected body of Christ. Well, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee also of the trustworthiness of what he had to say. You might say it this way. If a person says that they're going to be killed, dead for three days, and then rise from the dead, and he does it, I think you ought to listen to what he's got to say about everything. <laughs> if our Lord said frequently with great detail that after he went up to Jerusalem he would be put to death, but on the third day he would rise again from the grave, and this prediction came to pass, then it had always seemed to me, I'm reading from, I don't know who I'm reading from. It's a long quote, but I don't know who I got it from. It has always seemed to me that everything else our Lord ever said must also be true. If the words concerning his resurrection were true, then, what, then when he said that his precious blood was to be shed for the remission of sins, that is also true. When he said that he came down from the Father above, that the words he spoke the Father had given him, that he and the Father were one, that he was indeed the Son of God, that he was speaking the truth, when our Lord said that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life and whoever refused to believe in him would be condemned, he spoke the truth, that the empty tomb and the fact of the risen Lord should assure us forever that when the Lord said he was going to prepare a place for us, that he would come again and receive us to himself, and also that when the dead heard his voice, the voice of the Son of God, they would come forth from their graves, and that he will himself be the judge of all mankind, he was speaking the truth. If he rose from the dead, you better believe those things. That's the point. So Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of the truthfulness of everything that he has had to say. Another quote, Christ's resurrection is the amen of all his promises. So this is true. <clears throat> uh, it means that there is power for supernatural living now available to us. Christ's resurrection means that there's power for supernatural living now available for us. There is, in fact resurrection life 
living in every true Christian. As the song says, I serve a risen Savior. And we serve by His power. We serve the risen Savior because of His resurrection power that is granted us. And that's what the book of Romans chapter 6 is all about. I like the way this man, Bob George, put it. Um, He said, Jesus Christ laid down His life for us so that He could give His life to us so that, he, so that he could live his life through us. He gave, laid down his life for us so that he could give his life to us so that he could live his life then through us. So there's power because we serve a risen Savior. Another thing, Christ's resurrection is a clear testimony of his deity. And that's what... Paul says at the beginning of the book of Romans, just read it to you here, chapter 1 and verse 3 and 4, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the son of God with power. It's a testimony of his deity, his being the divine son of God was somewhat veiled in those 33 years that he was walking here on earth. You know, it says that he emptied himself, he humbled himself for those 33 years. But the resurrection demonstrates in great power who he really is. If he'd not risen from the dead, you could view him as a failure or an imposture by Raising him from the dead, God publicly acknowledged him as his divine son. And the fact is, Christ raised himself from the dead. He said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. He rose by his own divine power. And then lastly, the resurrection of Christ shows us that our work is not in vain. Now, why do I say that? I say that because that's the way Paul closes this whole section in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he deals this lengthy, chap, uh, this lengthy chapter on the resurrection. And then when he brings it all to a close, this is what he says down in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In light of the resurrection, you see, he says that. You know your work is not in vain because Christ rose from the dead. Because of the resurrection of Christ, the believer can know with certainty that truth crushed to earth shall rise again. doesn't matter how bad things may look. Just press on. Christ has risen. Uh, that life... We can know that life is going to triumph over death, that good in the end will prevail over evil, and happiness, not misery, shall be the latter end of all who are in Christ because he's risen from the dead. You see, that's what Paul's... He brings that whole chapter to a close and says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection proves that. So... Those are just a few thoughts related to this subject of the resurrection. But Christ has brought 
life and immortality to light through the gospel. No more uh, do we have to wonder about these things that were uh, that trouble multitudes yet today and have troubled. If a man dies, shall he live? Have troubled people through the centuries, shall he live again? The answer is yes. Christ has risen from the dead. We know that for certainty. Well, maybe there would be a song that someone would have that we could close with. All right, 288 in the redemption.